You know, one of the scariest things in life, if you can remember back when you were, or maybe you're there now, is when you were that young kid dating for the first time. Y'all put yourself in that framework, and then you're suddenly going to go over to your girlfriend or your boyfriend's house for the first time in your life. Anybody remember how you felt when you were walking up to the door or you were going to go engage? For me, it was pretty, it was pretty interesting because I still remember the first time I was going to head over to my, my in-law's house for like, I think it was Thanksgiving or something like that. And I'd already met my, my, my parents, my in-laws, um, my parents, but their extended family I had yet to engage with completely. And one of my, um, one of my friends sat me down named Mike and he said, Hey, you know, you just got, I'm just going to give you a warning before you go over there. I'm like, what? Well, he'd been at several other family functions. He's like, just watch out for grandma. I'm like, watch out for grandma. Yeah. Oh yeah. Watch it. She's, she's going to want to give you a kiss. And I'm like, what? So I show up and I'm there and I'm sort of, you know, I'm in nervous mode and me in nervous mode is really awkward. And so I'm standing there and I'm just like, hey, hey people, you know, I'm seeing this this grand family of just, they know each other, they're loud, they're boisterous, they're, they, they, they love each other. And then out of nowhere, I, I hear, who's that cute guy? And I'm like, <laughs> and, and she's like, I turn around and he's flame, these flaming red lips stick on these. And she's like, oh, give me a kiss. And she just walks straight up at me. I'm like, oh, what did Jesus say? Turn the other cheek. Okay. So I just nails me right on the cheek. I'm good to go, but that was my introduction to my, uh, <laughs> my grandmother-in-law. She's awesome. But uh, just to, I like watching other people go through that now. But the reality <laughs> is that I was most nervous about the meal, not nervous about meeting people. Isn't that true? It, it, the meal is the nerve-wracking portion because when you first meet your, your future in-laws or you first meet that person, your dating's parents, it's the meal where you're probably going to get grilled. It's the meal where you're going to get analyzed. And when you're eating, it is the worst case scenario to be analyzed in. Is he a smacker? Because you're sitting there like, do I, do, I put, do, I, do I put this in my lap? Do I, do I take the napkin and put it in my shirt? Do, did I even remember the napkin? What, what fork goes where? Are they going to do that as a potluck? Stuff? There's so much that you're overwhelmed with at a meal. And then the questions start coming and you think, I'm going to ask questions back. And you're a nervous wreck. You're not hungry. You don't eat anyway. Because meals are intimate. Amen? You don't just pop into a, any old restaurant and sit down with random people. If you do, don't do that. That's not socially correct. <laughs> I learned that young. Um, and the reality is that it's because meals are intimate. You know each other. When you, you, don't, you don't just have random strangers into your home. Typically, you've engaged them at some point. Then you sit down and you have a meal. And it's the meal time that's the most intimate. It's the time where you're saying, I'm connected with you, even more so in the ancient world. In the ancient world, a meal was a, was a social status connection. If you were wealthy and you had poor people sitting at your table, you were proclaiming they were your equals. If you were, if you were family, you had family at your table. And if you invited a stranger to sit at your table, they were family now. Because the most intimate conversations occurred, the longest conversations would occur, and the most intimate time period was the table. And the table is the center of what we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks in the book of John. Uh, Brent brought us through this conversation. We've, uh, we'll find the passage actually this morning in John chapter 13. If you want to go there, we'll look at this table scenario that's happening. And, and John has just ushered us into the Passover meal. And as they're sitting at this meal, they're not technically sitting. They're actually lying down. 
um, in, in their culture, it would have been shaped in a, their, the table would have been in a U shape. So kind of like you would think of a conference room. If you're at a conference where you're going to all face each other, you have that U shaped table at the head point right at the center is where Jesus would have been laid, laying down on a divan, a, a couch, his feet pointed behind him, his left hand resting under his head, and he would eat with his right hand. In the meantime, they would lean up and talk to each other at the table, but that created certain setup of, social st- of a social strata. So the person, to the, the person who sat in that middle seat, that person was the host, and he was hosting the table. He's the closest to everybody in that sense. The person on the right had the, to my right, your left at this point, had the right called the table of friends, or the seat of friendship, had the right to lean back on the host's chest and ask questions, talk to them intimately. That's why it was the, the area of friendship. And so literally it was a, a very cl- close connection. In the meantime, the person behind them was called the seat of honor. Because the host had to humble himself to lean back to talk to them. And so you have this stratification as it goes on, the kind of the seats change as it goes down. But you can imagine here in our setup, as you're reading in John, you got Jesus in the middle. You have John the Apostle sitting in front of him and he leans back on his chest. This isn't the picture of, of Leonardo da Vinci's like, hey, you know, that thing. That's not what's going on here. They're laying down. Judas is now sitting probably in the seat of honor behind Jesus. So that picture in your mind as this food has been coming out, Jesus has gotten up, he's put, a, put the servant's robes on, and he's now washed their feet. As you can see, their feet are very accessible in the setup. And he's humbled himself. He's gotten up, and now he's explained why he has done such a thing and how we as, as disciples will do similar things because we are going to be like our master. Now, as he moves on, we pick up where it left, we left off. In verse 21, it says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. So something is stirring up in him. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. I don't know about you if you've ever had that meal where either you had to say the horrible thing or somebody else said, I have an announcement to make. Or in some cases, maybe it was a sister that just blurted out, I'm pregnant, you know, whatever. There are those statements that happen at tables sometimes that everybody's so shocked it's silent after that. And this is one of them. There's really no speaking that occurs after this sentence. Jesus turns to the guys and he says, one of you, I'm telling you the truth here. I say to you, one of you is going to betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. I want you to notice all the body language. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, probably quietly, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it's it's he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So you can imagine this picture. John is sitting there, and there's such a connection with the disciples. They can actually speak to each other without even saying words. Peter's probably sitting in the corner over there since John would be facing over in that direction. And he's looking at him going like, you know, which one? Who is it? And John goes, oh, okay, I'll ask him. So, so, Lord, which, who is it? And Jesus goes, it's the guy I'm going to, Take this bread, and I'm going to dip it, and it's the one I give it to. I wonder if John was thinking, please don't give that to me. <laughs> and, Jesus, and then I wonder, did Jesus slow play this? Like he tells John, it's the one I give the morsel to. 
Oh, no, I, no I'm, I'm sure he didn't. He, he, he dipped it, he turns and he hands it, as it says, to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after Judas had taken the morsel, it says that Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, some people right there, you've just lost, I've just lost you. You're like, Satan went into him? Like the Satan? Yes, the Satan. Um, many people in today don't, don't really hold to demons or angels. And yet I find that fascinating since we hold aliens. Um, and we hold to many other interesting things like ghosts and poltergeists. Um, the, the demonic realm is a real realm. The, the angelic realm is a real realm. There are fallen angels. And one of them is indeed, ha, has been leading that legion and is in a battle against that, the Lord and against good. And it's not surprising to believe there's a malevolent being in this world that wants to tempt and lead us away. In this case, he is, he is seeing his moment. It's been a battle with Jesus since the temptations. It's been a battle with Jesus throughout the entire Bible. Finally, Satan seizes his moment, one of his inner circle, he's going to get to betray him. And now the opportunity has come. He's made the announcement and Satan enters in. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Jesus is in complete control. Turns to him and says, what you do, what you're going to do, do quickly. You're going to betray me now, go do it. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this. So he just said, one of you is going to betray me. Silence, silence. He dips something, hands it to somebody else. John has an idea. What you do, go do it quickly. And suddenly Judas gets up with a money bag intact and heads out the door. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something, to the, uh, give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Dum, dum, dum. So that's, that's kind of what happens after that. It's now this dark, sinister, play the really dark music. It's intense. It has built up this situation because Jesus is about to be betrayed. Now, that intensity was only going to last so long because we're going to end up with the longest discourse Jesus gives in the book. <clears throat> but we're going to... Stay here for a second because this picture begins to unfold something very interesting for us. The author intentionally sets up some very strange things. First of all, he doesn't call John, John. He doesn't say me. He says the beloved disciple. And he calls Judas as the betrayer. And really it sets up this concept of the church, that there's this intimacy going on at this table. And in the church is a betrayer and a beloved. And really there are two routes as Christians that we can take in our spiritual lives. Either you, will cha- you, you can become a betrayer because you're here for false motivations or you can press into Christ and become beloved. And really this morning what I want to say is that in the church there's always betrayers, but let's focus on being the beloved. And let's look at this because I think it'll begin to unpack a little bit what, what I'm talking about as we kind of discover some of these pieces. First of all, the, the church is Christ's intimate community. When I talk about the church, what you're seeing here is this table fellowship represents Jesus' family. These are his 12 apostles that he has chosen. They're his intimate core group. And as he's sitting there saying, this is family. This is the Passover meal. You have that with your family. This is a picture of the church. Look how intimate it is. They can look at each other out of the corners of their eyes and give each other signals. They don't accuse each other. They know each other well enough that they, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, they weren't all like looking at Judas, like, hey, we know it's you. 
because you steal money. No, why didn't they all look at Peter? You're the arrogant one. You're one always yelling and screaming. Why didn't they look at John and James? You two have anger problems. How do we not know you're not yelling and going to go crazy? How, why didn't they look at Thomas? Doubter. You never believe anything he says anyway. They had plenty of reason to suspect anybody, but they, they just looked around like, who would do this? This is the Messiah. This is the one we follow. No accusations. There's intimacy. There's connection going on here. And the reality is that intimacy is, is supposed to be the governing aspect of the church. And too often in, in, in churches today, it's hard to be intimate. Agree or disagree? It's hard. And a lot of people want to blame the size of churches for intimacy. Can I just tell you something? The size of the church has nothing to do with the intimacy in the church. It's a great excuse. Oftentimes, if we're going to excuse the size of a church for the intimacy in a church, they often claim that's because the leadership somehow hasn't provided an opportunity for intimacy to occur amongst the church, and you're not making us be intimate. No, no. The only person you can blame for a lack of intimacy in the church is the person sitting in your chair. I am responsible for the intimacy I have at church. You are responsible for your intimacy at church. No one can make you be intimate. No one can force you to connect with people. No one can give you, they can give you plenty of platforms, but nobody can make it happen. Intimacy is something that only you alone can create. And this is important for us to note because I want to talk about the church and intimacy because as the church grows in size, yeah, there's three services. How are we going to have intimacy with people in different services? How in the world is it going to happen? The answer is however you want to. In fact, what we try to do is we want to point out, first of all, you can't have intimacy with everybody in church. Nobody can. The pastor can't. Um, the only person who can do that is Jesus by his spirit. No one else on earth can possibly do that. You can only have so many people to be intimate with in your life, and then you're, you're out. You're tapped out. You can't even remember that many names. So I, I'm not telling you you have to be intimate with every single person even in this room. That's why small groups are provided. That's why the opportunity of a small location where you're known and you get to be known or, and you get to know enables you to have intimacy. See, the danger in intimacy is that we assume we got to have it with everybody and so we're so exhausted we have it with nobody. But in a small group, you end up with what Jesus has. This isn't all his disciples. Did you notice that? There are other women who are there. There are other men who are there. There are other disciples. This is his 12. He has chosen his small group in a sense that he is spending this meal with and it's picturing the intimacy between them. And they were intimate because honestly, they did life together. I mean, they went everywhere together for three years. They knew each other's names. They knew each other's habits. They fought with each other. Jesus called them out on their sins. I mean, there was no hiding around Jesus, amen? I mean, he was gonna, he was gonna show you what your problem was. I mean, if, if he's willing to look Peter in the sa- face and say, get behind me, Satan, and all the other guys are like, you know, that, you're in a pretty intense scenario. And that's what these 12 guys are, have been living in for the last three years, getting to know each other deeply and living in life together, watching each other do miracles, hearing each other preach, watching amazing things God do, does through them. That's the church. And that happens, yes, on Sundays as we spend time together, as we serve each other, as God does amazing things through your prayer, your care, your intimacy, using your giftedness to see how God promotes the the mind of a child, the ability for us to know the word of God or the way it cares for somebody and somebody gives their life to Christ. There's all kinds of ways that we get to engage on Sundays, but it's in the small groups that you get to be known. And when you come on Sundays, I hope you come with your small group because then you're known. You get connected with them. 
you're, you're, now you don't want clicks necessarily where these are the only people I know. You want to invite people in and get to know others. But the reality is those who are closest to you are the ones who are intimate with you. Now, there are four things I want to point out then that are going to kill intimacy. And, and again, when I talk about intimacy, I'm not talking about sexual intimacy, okay? I get we live in a culture that thinks that's what the word means. No, I'm talking about true intimacy where you're known and you're being known, where you're authentic and you're accepted for who you are. That's intimacy. And so here we go. It starts with, I'm going to give you four tips. The first tip is this. You need to make people a priority. You need to make church a priority. In other words, don't be busy. And everybody said, easier said than done. Amen? I mean, we are a busy culture. We are constantly this, 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 this. You're here on Sunday morning and you penciled this. I know, you penciled in Sunday. You didn't write it in ink because something may come up. We're busy. But if that's the case, imagine if that's how your family worked. You you wouldn't have intimacy. You're like, yeah, I knew we were going to have this date, babe, but uh, we were just, I was a little too busy. I had to cancel the date. You know, you're not going to do that to your spouse. You're not going to do that to your best friend. You're going to keep these things because you're going to make them a priority. And too many of us, even if, you, even if you're just checking Olive Branch out and you're going to end up in another church, these will help you enter that church and get connected. Because it's important first that you make the, your church and your time at church, your small group, a priority. If it's not a priority, you'll skip it. Other things will squeeze it out and it destroys intimacy because you don't have time with people. In fact, what happens is when we're, when we're in this way, we go to church. We don't be church. You realize you can't go to church? Then according to the scriptures, this building's not the church. It's just a building. That you and I are the church. And what often happens is when we are busy, we do church. We don't be the church. We go to church and we get it over with, and we go home, and we go live our life. But God called us to be the church. It's a very different thing. He gave you gifts because you're part of the church. You are the church. He empowered you to serve one another because you are the church. The beauty of what we have here is that builds intimacy in a service team, in a small group on Sundays. But we can't just be busy. We, we got to set a priority for our small groups, for those times. A, a second tip is this. Stop and stay a while. Why are, you, why are we all in such a rush? Got to be, gotta beat the traffic. Got to beat the, you know, I get it. We, we are a rushing, busy people. And I'm that way too. I mean, to be quite honest, what, busyness makes us hurried. And hurried people cannot be intimate. You know, when somebody comes up to you on Sundays and you're in a hurry and they say, hey, I, I just really need this prayer. You're like, cool, tell me what it is. And they tell you, you're like, all right, I'll pray for you. No, you're not going to pray for them. You know it. You're going to go home and you're going to get busy and you're going to forget. Oh yeah, I said I'd pray for them. In other words, when you say that, you just lied. Liars. You're going to have to go to God and apologize for not praying for somebody you said you'd pray for now because we were in a hurry. When we're not in a hurry, you have a chance to care. When you're not in a hurry and you stop and you stay a while, you're able to say, oh, you have that prayer because let me pray for you right now. I want to pray for you right now. And some of you guys are like, I don't want to pray for anybody. You don't know my prayers. It's okay. God will work through you. Don't, don't worry about your prayers. Just care. Pray for somebody. 
And the reality is, if you stop and you don't hurry through things, you actually end up having time to stay and connect. I've been practicing this, trying to talk to people, trying not to rush off to the next thing. The, the questions grow deeper. The conversation gets better. You learn more about people. But when you got something else to get to, you're rushing. That's honestly why I don't like Apple Watches right now. Just let me be honest. Because I'll sit across from somebody, and it's not that they're in a hurry, but they get their notification on their watch, and they're like, oh, and I'm like, what are you doing? You got to get out of here? You got another meeting to go to? Oh, no, no. But think about what we're doing in our culture. We're constantly hurrying each other up. Oh, I got this text message. Oh, I got this thing. When we get the, the tweet, whatever it is. You know, we're hurried. We're like, I got to look. I got to look. I got to respond. I got to respond now. In fact, we have terms. If you don't respond fast enough, that you're somehow a mean person over social media or whatever. Guys, this is ridiculous. Our culture, hurry, 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 hurry. Even if I speed up, you feel hurried. And we're going to talk really fast. You feel hurried. The reality is you can't breathe and you can't have intimacy. If we don't stop and slow down and stay a while, that's why we set up tables that's why we offer coffee. Yes, it's a stimulant. It makes you faster. But the point is that <laughs> we want you guys to sit down, talk, connect. Don't hurry through. In some cases, you may find that you are always hurrying in your small group because of various things. Maybe you change your night then where you're not hurried. Because hurriedness kills intimacy. You won't have time for that prayer request. You won't have time to Think through the problem with somebody and come to a solution. Hurriedness is the fastest killer to intimacy, and we are a hurried people. Tip three, be vulnerable, not self-defensive. Too often when we gather together and somebody, we're saying, yeah, you know, spend time. You're like, I don't want to spend time. You get that kind of like, eh, feeling. Because that means I'm going to have to open myself. I don't want to open myself up. Some of you guys are so invulnerable, you don't even know what you feel. But notice what James says. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be what? You may be what? Healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power that's working. Ladies, I'm gonna set you aside for a second because you guys are actually pretty good typically when it comes to your friends of opening your hearts up to each other. The guys, men, We've been raised to think we got to do it ourselves. Figure it out. No, I'm going to open this gate up. You know, because, you know, I'm a man. And men figure their own problems out before they go get help. Amen? Man code stuff. You are made in the image of a God who is triune and has been a community for eternity. You're not made to do anything alone. Period. Man, if you're not willing to open the gate of your heart up, it will harden and you will begin to not even understand your own life or heart. At which point, how can you be intimate even with your spouse or your children who need to hear what you're thinking, who need to know what you're feeling, who need to see how you're struggling. And then if you don't have a guy in your life who is, a, is part of the fraternity, because let's just be honest, we're just pack animals, guys. That's all we really are. We need the pack. You're like, evolutionary theory. No, that's not saying that. But my point is, men need men. It's called fraternity. It's been lost in our society. These men are unafraid to reveal the dark secrets of their souls to the right person. Now, I'm not saying run around and tell everybody at church. That's a bad idea. 
But we need to get past something that has existed in the church. Yes, the generations before me lived in a model in which the pastor was the primary example for everyone to live by. And he is exalted and righteous in all of his actions, and he is good. And I am a holy person. When I come to church, I wear my Sunday best. I step inside. I don't reveal anything because I am holy. And so there's been so many secrets kept in closets of elders and pastors and people that it has destroyed so much church that my generation grew up and said, what we want is everything to hang out. So let it all out. Be authentic has been the cry. And I believe it's right with the right people. There needs to be people in your life who you are vulnerable with and you are authentic to. And if you're scared they're going to reject you, that proves you need it. Because the reality is we don't do life alone. We can't get through this stuff alone. And if you're struggling with something so deep you're afraid to share it, you will never get healed. You will never find healing. You will build a web of lies and deceit. And you'll be far closer to a betrayer than a beloved. Intimacy is necessary and it has to be part of who we are. It has to be part of what goes on. And finally, we need to view others as better than ourselves. And what this is is simply don't be self-righteous. If we come self-righteous and we think we know what we're talking about, nobody likes hanging out with the person who knows everything and knows how to fix you. Isn't that true? You pay the counselor to fix you. You don't go be their friend. That's how this works. When your friends are with you, you need somebody to be with you, to wrestle through with you, to care about you. But you don't want the person who's always got the answer and always telling you how you can fix things. Don't be that person. When you approach, there's something we can learn from everyone. As a, if you've been a Christian too long, you begin to think that you're actually better than people because you've lived in the church with Jesus and stuff. No, no, no. Jesus saves the garbage of the earth because it's the only way to be saved is through Jesus. We're all a mess. I'm a mess. If you knew me, you'd be like, why are you the pastor? And I say, because God likes to use nasty, dirty things for his glory. So you've been holding yourself back from serving because you think you're too messed up. Trust me, God can use you. It's what he uses. And if you think that's not me, I advise you to read your Bible a little bit more. The reality is we come to each other in a, in, a, in a position of poverty. I need you. Intimacy is built off of the ability to not think that they have something for me. If I think I'm fine, I'm good, I don't need anybody. That will never bring intimacy. And so intimacy is destroyed by these four things. It's destroyed by the idea of being busy, being hurried, being invulnerable, and being self-righteous. And that's not the goal of a church. And so look for these things in your life. Look for these and bring them out because intimacy is important. But here's the problem. If intimacy exists, it's scary because that means when somebody leaves, it really feels like betrayal because it should. You see, Judas came and the church will have betrayers. It always will. Judas was a betrayer. He, and note this, nobody suspected him. Again, not all the heads turned and looked at Judas. He was one of the 12. He's a rock star, guys. This is a spiritual leader. He's been following Jesus intimately for three years. You're not going to go like, yeah, that guy's a mess. I can tell. No, he, you wouldn't be able to tell. He was teaching. He was casting out demons. He was doing stuff that was amazing of their disciples. And he had authority. He had the money bag. 
That's a lot of trust to be trusted with the money. And he was sitting in the seat of honor at the Passover with Jesus. They're not looking at Judas. And this is important for us because we can be surprised when amongst leadership, betrayers appear, and they will. They do all over the churches, all over the world. They sneak in and they rise up into leadership and they begin to do things. And the reason why I want you guys to, be, to know this is not to be scared, but to be aware. Jesus already warned us this would happen. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, he says, Beware, telling the disciples, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That means they look just like us. The sheep, you can't tell the sheep apart, but inside... They're wolves. They're ready to pounce, destroy. They're there to do something for their own greedy desires. And there are potentially betrayers amongst us today who are here for financial gain, power gain, all kinds of different kinds of things we've seen throughout the history of the church. People often will use churches because it helps them feel like they're something because they can rise up the ranks of something without any relationship really with Jesus. Peter, in 2 Peter, will actually warn us in another way. He'll say, look, these same false prophets that I believe Jesus is speaking of also arose among the people, he states, in the Old Testament, just as there will be false teachers among you. And here's what they do. They secretly bring in destructive heresies. That sounds good at first, but eventually a heresy is anything that is contrary to Scripture and the historical tradition of the faith is a great way to check it. In our theology course, what they used to tell us is if you come up with a novel theological idea, you're probably wrong. And the reason they tell us that is because so much of the debate has gone on with a great, amazing amount of minds who knew the scriptures. And so we were constantly checked to go, remember your theology, go back to scripture. You can defend it from scripture. You have to be able to defend it from how it's really understood, which is why you need to be a student of your own Bible. You test what I'm saying from this pulpit. Don't just drink it. Don't consume this. Engage it. Don't just consume your small group study. Engage it. Know the word of God. There are lots of tools to enable you to grow and to know the word of God. But don't just drink it in because you don't know. You may be listening to a heretic. Now, does that worry anybody? Good. So I hope it does. Freaks you out a little bit. Should. Because eventually it leads to even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Uh, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this, honestly, is I watched it happen. In the youth ministry that I was a part of growing up, there was a young man who had amazing charisma, grew a, a portion of our small group to 130 some odd kids in a barn where he taught a Bible study. He was considered the expert in the theology in our church, led tons of people to the Lord, tons of people discipled, and he was amazing. And he went off to college, and he went on to, and to Jerusalem and came back, and then when he returned, he told everybody, listen, there is no such thing as the Trinity, started arguing this, pulling this out, weaving these themes together until many of my friends were so wrestling with it, a dozen or so followed him out of the church. To this day, he works at a, as a professor at a college, basically teaching people why Christianity is not true. That's a betrayer. And it's heartbreaking because you love these people and you care about these people. But when they leave, they will bring out heresy. You see, this is the warning. We don't go hunting for betrayers, okay? This is not like put on your betrayer and sniffer and, you know, like, 
Okay, they're in this section right here today. You know, no, it's not what we're out to. We're not like, I know there's a betrayer and I'm going to find him. No. What did Jesus do with the 12 before he announced there was a betrayer? He washed their feet. It's about intimacy. It's not about discovering the betrayer. We love each other. If you profess you're a Christian or if you're in this room today and you're checking things out, our goal is to love you and to care about you, to treat you like a brother or a sister. That's the, that's the point. I'm not here to ferret it out. The word of God will do that. You see, when Jesus turned to Judas and said, what you're going to do, do it quickly, that brought him to action. It's the word of God that brings it out. That's why we do membership, by the way. All branches and just have a come all and you're all part of the membership now. No, we do membership specifically because it guides people through our theological beliefs and it helps us vet who gets to become leaders and who gets to have control of the church because we don't want the betrayers rising up to leadership. And we don't want them having a position of power so that when they leave, people follow them. See, the reason they leave, they went out from us, John says, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. And the point is God will remove them. He'll let them go so that he can prove that they're not a part of the people we ought to be following. And that betrayal is true and it's real. And here's the thing. I could get into more details, but I don't need to right now. The only person who knows they're a betrayer is you do. You only know if you're a betrayer yourself. Right now, you're in the room. You know you don't believe any of this stuff. You're having fights with me over the text. You're arguing with what I'm saying because you're thinking in your head, no, 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 no. You're listening more to the culture and agreeing with them over the word of God, as Judas did, because he agreed with the Pharisees and the Sadducees about who Jesus was over what Jesus said himself and ultimately betrayed them to him. And so you know if you side with culture more than Scripture. You know if you, where you're standing, if you, why you're, what reasons you're involved in the church. And I would just advise you, turn, come to Christ. He loves you. He would wash your feet. He would put you in the seat of honor. He still loves you. Now, right there, some of you are going paranoid, like I did. When I was young, a young Christian, I sat there, me, Mark, and Stephen actually all had the same experience. We said, we were kind of at this place, and we went, are we the Antichrist? What if we're the Antichrist? You ever had that question float through your head where you're like studying, you're like, what if I'm the Antichrist? That'd be weird. Oh no, am I? And you freak out. No, don't do that. If you think, am I a betrayer? I don't know. Just press into being a beloved disciple. You know the reason they don't, he doesn't name John is he wants you to focus on the fact that he's beloved. And the beloved disciple is able to be intimate with Jesus, lean up against his chest and ask him a question. He doesn't leave Jesus in the worst times. He sits at the cross. The beloved disciple is the most intimate ideal disciple. That's what we ought to be, a church filled with disciples who are intimate with Jesus Christ. How do I be intimate with Jesus, Greg? I need to know. Simple. Read your Bible and pray. Really? That's it? Well, yeah. Greg, I read my Bible every day and I pray every day and it just that doesn't feel intimate to me. Good point. Let me give you four tips on how to be intimate with God. Yes, through reading your Bible and praying, Yes, even using your giftedness. Four tips. Number one, cultivate time with God. Don't be busy. Wait, does this sound familiar? Don't be busy. Don't do a quiet time. It's like you shouldn't just go to church. Don't do your quiet time. You're like, check. Too many of us are rushing through our quiet times and just doing them. Just, I got it. Check. 
And so you know what it is? The Bible is dull and boring and your prayer life is just a bunch of things you say in the air because all it is is something you do to get it done. That is not a relationship. I mean, can you imagine me doing that to my wife? Hi, babe. How you doing? That whole thing. No, you can't do that to God. You need to have a relationship. So what's, guess what's next? Don't rush. If you're going to have a time with God, don't rush through it. Spend it, cultivate it, grow it, allow it to breathe. Enjoy your time with the Lord. Too many of us are like, read, 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 read. got to get somewhere else. And blessed are you who are in rush hour traffic. Say, yeah, right, Greg, was this a beatitude? No, I'm dead serious. <laughs> who else gets sealed into a box where nobody can hear them? You can turn a radio off. You can pray all you want and people think you're on a cell phone. And guess what? Prayer is natural in traffic. <laughs> All the traffic people are like, yes. But it's not very nice prayer. No, it's not. <laughs> and the reality is you have a long opportunity to spend time with God. See, we rush by strangers and we pass by an acquaintance. Maybe we stop and say hi to a friend, but you live with those you love. Are we treating God more like an acquaintance? or a stranger? Are we stopping, spending the time and not rushing? Spend that time in prayer. Turn off that radio. Spend, find that time. Lock it in. Make it a priority. Don't rush through it. It's like a rock in a stream. Everything else should go around it. Tip three, confess to God. Be open. Don't be invulnerable. Too many of you are not coming to God and being honest with him because you're afraid he's evil. No, I didn't say he's not, he's dangerous. Trust me, he's dangerous. But he's not evil. You see, he's like a doctor. A doctor sits and works on the disease. It takes this, the bad skin off. Now, if I am the bad skin, I think the doctor is evil. So when I approach God in my flesh and in my sin, God's evil because I don't want him to work on me. So I'm not going to confess. I'm not going to get near God. But if I come as one who's been transformed by Christ and I want him to deal with my sin, yeah, he's dangerous, but the pain he causes me is for my healing. And that comes from confession and being open with God, being absolutely honest. If you are not honest in your prayer life, you will not be intimate. If you are not honest in your reading of the word, allowing yourself to go, that's me, I do that. And then confess it and work out with God, you're not having intimacy with God. If you're just rolling through it, you're just gonna move on. But finally, come in need. The Bible calls it poor in spirit, but you know, in our culture, that doesn't mean a whole lot. Because people move up and in and out of poverty in all kinds of places. In the ancient world, when you were poor, you stayed poor. You were raised poor, died poor. So were your children and your grandchildren, your grandfather before you. Poverty was life. But that's not how we think of it. Instead of thinking of it this way, you're born a diabetic. If you're born a diabetic, you cannot live without insulin. We are spiritually diabetics. And if you come to God thinking that you're not, and you have everything that you need, you will have no intimacy with God. Because you need him like a diabetic who is born a diabetic needs insulin. Or else we die. And our bodies fail and our lives fail. So let me challenge you. When you go into your quiet time next time, when you step into being with God, go with what you know you need. 
you need encouragement because you're down, if you need strength because you're tempted, if you need patience because you're angry, if you need help because you're helpless, if you need from some, you need to go to God with your need because he is the one who provides. And that builds intimacy because you need it. You're contingent. He made you. And so with these thoughts, I want to challenge you as a church. Yes, there are betrayers that will happen. Don't be surprised. Instead, let's focus on being beloved. Let's grow our intimacy together as a church. And let's grow our intimacy with God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have just to examine these barriers to intimacy with you and with each other. And God, we do. We want to be like John. We want to be beloved disciples. We want to be people who know you and walk with you faithfully. So help us, God, to to fight off these distractions and these barriers. Enable us to draw near to you in a way that we've never been able to before. You're so good to us to have loved us. You've been so vulnerable to us to be honest with us in your word. You're always with us. You're never rushing away from us. You're not too busy for us. And yes, you are righteous in yourself. And yet you still were willing to be humble and give us your righteousness. God, you're a God of intimacy and you've longed for that intimacy with us. Help us to have that intimacy with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand?